hear God's word, which is for you this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, One of the consequences, one of the many consequences of living in uh, this sin-ravaged world is that crying, crying is a part of what it means to be human. Uh, Think about it this way. Who taught you to cry? No one, right? The answer, of course, is no one. Although none of us remember it, the first sound that all of us made when we left the warm, protected home of our mother's belly was a loud wail, a heartfelt protest. Every one of us humans has the same opening chapter to our story. Life for us began with tears. Have you cried lately? (laughs) Have you grieved or mourned over anything or, or anyone? You know, I think it's true that although all of us, for the most part, are born crying... Many of us spend a majority of our lives trying to prevent ourselves from having to cry. We try to erect a life around us that will shield us from sadness, from mourning. That's not a situation that many of us want to find ourselves in. We're all a little bit like Tom Hanks in that movie from the 90s, A League of Their Own. You remember that movie? Tom Hanks is a down-and-out former baseball player who can't get a job managing a men's baseball team, and so he finds himself unwillingly coaching a women's baseball team because it's the only option he has. And at one point, one of his female players is upset when he's Well, being a coach and yelling at her in her face. And she begins to cry in front of him. And Tom Hanks famously says, what? There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. And then the whole team begins, of course, to cry. We tell ourselves, there's no crying in life. I need to grin and bear it. In today's passage, Jesus gives us a second beatitude that once again turns upside down our expectations of what his kingly reign is like. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Come again? What was that, Jesus? Blessed are the mourners, 
Blessed are the sad. Happy are the sad ones. That's an appropriate translation. Talk about counterintuitive. Before we look more carefully at what Jesus is saying here, I want to just take a second and review what Keith started last week by telling you again what Jesus is doing in the Beatitudes. Last week, Keith introduced us to the Beatitudes by talking about what it means to be poor in spirit. These Beatitudes lead off Jesus' most famous set of teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And so just on the basis of where Matthew places the Beatitudes in the Gospel, we should understand that they're significantly important pieces of teaching. But I think Keith last week mentioned that the Beatitudes are actually quite easily um, misunderstood and also quite easily misapplied. Um, I agree. In fact, like Keith, uh, I found this week all manner of different interpretive strategies for the Beatitudes. And and, uh, I was disappointed, frankly, in most of the studies and commentaries I read. And, And I think that there are actually two big dangers in reading and applying these beatitudes of Jesus, which are important for us to identify if we're going to avoid them. Let me just real quickly before we get into it, tell you about these dangers. The first danger is that we will use the beatitudes to invent for ourselves a new form of legalism. Um, In fact, it's very common to interpret the Beatitudes like this. Do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. As if the Beatitudes are a way to gain God's favor. A way to be a kingdom of God type person. And that's dangerous because all of us, every single one of us in this room, including myself, by nature, like to attempt to self-engineer our own righteousness. We usually want to read the Beatitudes like this. However, to use last week as an example, being poor in spirit, or to use this week as an example, being in mourning are not meritorious states of being. They're not activities, nor are they postures that commend you or me to God. In fact, If you look at each beatitude, Jesus here is simply invoking a blessing on his people. He's not telling us to do anything. It's the first, if the first beatitude is is a guidepost for the rest of them, and I think that it is, then I think it's helpful to say that those who are poor in spirit are called blessed by Jesus not because. They're in a meritorious condition, but because precisely in spite of and in the midst of their utterly deplorable condition, the reign of God has moved redemptively upon them by the grace of Jesus Christ. So the first danger is to read the Beatitudes and think, I should be like that in order to please God. That's not what the Beatitudes are about. Jesus is saying, rather, blessed are those who are already like God this. And then there's a second related danger. The first danger is that we'll use the Beatitudes to invent a new form of legalism that we hold ourselves accountable to but don't actually measure up to and that we hold others accountable to and they won't measure up to either. The second danger is one of application. Uh, Namely, that we need to be these things in order to really be happy. 
in order to really be blessed. I mean, that word blessed or happy, it's a fair translation, is repeated again and again and again in each of these verses. And so we can interpret that like this. For example, in our beatitude today, we could say, I need to be sadder. What a strange thought, by the way. I need to be sadder because that's the key to me really being happy. Okay, there might be some truth to that. Um, Sadness for those who are connected to Jesus in faith will at some point lead to comfort. But, but listen, the Beatitudes are not conditions for you or for I being happier. Many, many commentators and preachers have said that, and I'm convinced that they're incorrect in that interpretation. I don't think Jesus means that you're going to be better off if you're poor or depressed or persecuted. So what does Jesus mean? How do we apply the Beatitudes? Here's what he means. The Beatitudes, and Keith alluded to this last week, they're descriptions of those upon whom the kingdom of God has dawned. There are descriptions of those to whom the kingdom of God is available by free grace. The Beatitudes are their case studies that prove for us that the promise of the kingdom is available to those who, by our standards, have no hope at all. Listen to how the late theologian and philosopher Dallas Willard put it. He writes this, the Beatitudes mean things like this, blessed are the flunkouts and the dropouts and the burnouts, the broke and broken, the drug heads and the divorced, the brain damaged and incurably ill, the barren and the pregnant too many times or at the wrong time, the overemployed, the underemployed, the unemployed, the unemployable, the swindled, the shoved aside, the replaced, the lonely, the incompetent, the stupid, the emotionally starved, or emotionally dead, Jesus offers to all such people as these the present blessedness of the present kingdom regardless of circumstances. The condition of life sought for by human beings through the ages is attained in the quietly transforming friendship of Jesus. That's good news. That's good news for every single one of us here this morning. And so I want to look with you, given those parameters interpretively, at the second of the Beatitudes. And and here's a way I want to just very simply summarize it. Here's what Jesus means in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. The kingdom is for the sad, and the sad will be comforted. Let's just break that statement into two parts and use that as an outline. First, Jesus tells us the kingdom is for the sad. Look again in verse 4. The word Jesus uses here for those who mourn. That's an important word. Um, Put very clearly, uh, mourning is the expression of deep sorrow. Mourning is the expression of bereavement. So those who mourn are those who are very deeply sad. Now, of course, the immediate question that probably crops up in our minds is, how can Jesus say, happy are those who are deeply sad? How can Jesus say, blessed are those who are mourning? 
Well, Jesus does not say here that mourning or sadness on its own is in and of itself necessarily a good thing. And he's certainly not saying that we should mourn and somehow try to like conjure up feelings of happiness in the midst of our sadness. What he's saying is that he has come to save those who are sad. Jesus came for the sorrowful. That's not to say that those who are happy are excluded. Just like when Jesus says in Luke's version of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor, he's not saying that if you're rich, you're excluded from the kingdom. I mentioned a moment ago, the the, the Beatitudes are, are case studies that prove that the gospel of the kingdom is available to those that seem to them and to us hopeless. Jesus, as he preaches this sermon, put yourself in the context in which he spoke on the mountainside. He was looking at his disciples first, but as 5.1 tells us, the crowds gathered around at a distance. And what would Jesus have seen as he looked at these people? As a preacher or as a teacher, you know that what you say is sometimes just, it shifts based on the posture and the tenor and the type of person you're speaking to. So who would Jesus have been speaking to? It would have been impoverished people, friends. It would have been hungry and, and thirsty people. Hurting people, sad people, people on the down and outs. And here's what he says to them. It is for you that I am ushering in this new world of God's reign of grace. You, he says, are who I came for. Jesus singles out the sad, not to rule out the possibility of the happy joining God's kingdom, but he singles out the sad because there's nothing impressive about sadness. There's nothing by, with depressed people that makes us think that must be someone that Jesus came for. In fact, as I mentioned a moment ago, we want to avoid sadness, don't we? In our own lives. Especially, I think, if you're, if you're a man. And our women are better in touch with their emotional lives, the fullness of who God has made them to be. I think that's fair to say. Uh, but I think to some degree, all of us want to avoid bereavement. We, we want to avoid deep sadness. We don't like to feel it ourselves. We dislike the vulnerability it makes us have. We dislike a, the sometimes very tangible hurt that it brings. The feeling of not being in control. The feeling of losing our composure. And, and we're also uncomfortable often with others who are in mourning, are we not? With the really, really sad people, with the depressed. We're uncomfortable with entering into solidarity with the hurting, often because there's not anything we can do. We can't fix it. We can't repair them. We can't say a magic word that's going to make them feel better. I think this is true for those of us in the church as well. We're uncomfortable with mourning, with sadness in the church. And if you doubt that what I'm saying is accurate, consider this. Google the top 100 most popular Christian songs right now. Just Google it. And I would be willing to bet that zero of 100 of those songs are laments. None of them are going to primarily be, as some have said, minor key songs. None of them are going to be talking about sadness, which I find very interesting because the songbook of the Bible, the Psalms, about a third of them, 50, 50 Psalms are at least to some degree songs of lament. 
We sing almost nothing of that in modern years, which I think, among other things, speaks to the lack of comfort we feel with sadness, with the mournful, with bereavements. One of my former seminary professors is a guy named Carl Truman. He's written a number of books, and he has one article that's been published in numerous places over the years, and the article is titled, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? Question mark. What can miserable Christians sing? And he makes the case that we have, to some degree, in evangelicalism, bought into, although we would never say this, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that externally so many of us would condemn because we refuse to sing songs that are sad in worship and in our own personal worship lives. And at one point, Truman, in the article, writes this. He says, quote, By excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who themselves are lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. By so doing, the church has generated an insipid, an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity. I think Truman's on to something there. That's why this beatitude is so counterintuitive. It goes so against the grain of what we would expect. We would expect Jesus to say, would we not? Blessed are those who are full of joy. Blessed are those who are doing great. That seems like who God would favor. Those who are happy in this world. Those who are enjoying God's blessings and the life God has given us. After all, those are the people we want to be around. Those are the people we want to be like. But once again, Jesus throttles our expectations. Blessed are the depressed. Blessed are the despondent. Blessed are those who experience pain and grieve it. Blessed are those who have lost someone and are wondering where God is. What are you sad about? Why didn't you come to church today, you might be thinking. I don't know the pastor's going to ask me that one. I don't want to feel sad. Sorry, guys. I think it's important for us to take a moment and, and enter into our own sadness. Perhaps even to mourn this morning. Let's, let's sit just for a moment in our sadness. I think that can be valuable for us because recognizing that there's so much to be sad about. And entering into even the sadness of others is, only, is the only way to, to really, with our hearts, hear the hope of Jesus' blessing here. Maybe you've been deserted. You've been left and abandoned by someone that you love. And, and it's left you paralyzed by rejection. Jesus came to call you. Not once you get out of that state. Not once you stop feeling that way. You now to himself. Maybe, um, maybe you're a parent who's experienced the gut-wrenching grief over the death of a child. Jesus came to bring you healing. Not when you're finally ready to be happy again. Not when you're over the loss. He came to bring you healing now in his resurrection life. 
Maybe you've lost your career or your business or your life savings because of this economic downturn or a prior economic downturn. Jesus says here to you now that he came to bring you life to the full with him one day. Maybe you still can't get pregnant. Jesus came to carry your hurts for you now all the way to his cross. Maybe you're watching a parent slowly suffer and die as their bodies literally disappear. Jesus came to be the resurrection and the life for you. So many things in this world break the heart. But because Jesus has come, blessed are those who mourn. Happy are the sad. In your bereavement, in your grief, in your sorrow, That's the moment in which Jesus wants you to know more than any other. He came for you in that season, in that time, in that emotional state. You will be comforted. That's what he says. Secondly, why don't we look at that for a moment? We see that the kingdom is for the sad. And then we see that the sad will receive comfort. Jesus doesn't leave us hanging. He says, blessed are the mourn, and then he gives us the reason, for they will be comforted. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean for those who mourn to receive comfort? I think there's both a future sense meaning and a present sense meaning behind what Jesus is saying when he says that he will comfort mourners. I mean, first, just look at the verse with me. The verb is in the future tense. Jesus says, they will be comforted. Now, of course, uh, Jesus is at least in part speaking about the day when his kingdom will arrive in all of its glorious fullness. We live now in the age in between Jesus' two comings, what theologians have helpfully, I think, called the already not yet in which all of God's promises, in principle, already have their yes and their amen, as Paul puts it in his Corinthian correspondence in Jesus. But we do not yet see the fullness of the promises, but one day we will. I think that's what Jesus is alluding to here. Mourners, the sad, the dispossessed and depressed, will be comforted when Jesus Christ in glory returns to make everything that is wrong with this world right again, to bring peace and justice, to usher in the fullness of his redemptive kingdom. I mean, how does the scripture speak about that day? Listen to what old man John saw towards the end of his life in a revelation from the Holy Spirit as he was exiled on the island of Patmos in the Mediterranean Sea. He writes about it. This is Revelation chapter 21. John says this, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Listen, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. 
For the former things have passed away. At Christ Church, we just finished a, a series on the book of Hebrews. And um, one of the main themes of that book is found in perhaps its most famous verse, where the author tells us in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. You could say the assurance of the not yet and the conviction of things not seen. In other words, friends, the sad can rely on the promise of God that his future world will indeed one day arrive. The mourners can take God at his word. The mourners can have faith and that, that in and, and of itself is comforting. Our life in this world is not at all unlike those fathers and mothers mentioned throughout the rest of Hebrews 11, who in this life did not receive what was promised. Indeed, who had to endure great sadness, but looked forward to the city that is to come, whose architect and builder is God himself. Even Sarah, old woman Sarah, barren for the majority of her life, mourning the lack of children, ended up with the laughter of heaven. As Hebrews 11.11 puts it, she considered him faithful who had promised. Are you sad? Are you depressed? Are you tired of feeling the way you feel? You will be comforted. Jesus is going to come back. And when Jesus comes back, all of our tears will be wiped away. All of our senseless sorrow will make sense. All of it will be well worth it. The present sufferings of this age, Paul tells us, aren't worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. We'll be comforted in the future. But Jesus is also saying here, very importantly, that we can be comforted right now. There's a present sense in which the sad are comforted. How? How does that work? What about the gospel can comfort mourners right now? Listen to me. Listen. When you can't stop crying, how does Jesus help you? When you don't want to get out of bed in the morning, what does Jesus have for you? When you're depressed and ashamed to talk about it, does Jesus have anything to say to you? Yes. Indeed, yes. Think about this with me, friends. The good news of the Christian faith is that God is so committed to comforting the morning that he entered into our sadness himself. He experienced its full depths and he overcame it. You know, there's only two times in the entirety of the New Testament in which we read that Jesus himself was sad, that Jesus wept. One is in the Gospel of John, chapter 11, when his good friend Lazarus died. That's another sermon for another day. The second is when Jesus, towards the end of the Gospel, is riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Just to take Luke's account as an example. Luke writes that as Jesus enters the city, he wept. But then Luke goes on to tell us and make it clear that Jesus isn't actually weeping for himself. He's not weeping for what he knows he's going to experience in just a few days' time. He's not weeping for the fact that he's about to be abandoned and, and rejected and beaten and crucified. No, he's weeping over the sins of Jerusalem. 
He's weeping about how they had abandoned God's sacred calling over them. He's weeping over the rejection they had shown him. He's weeping for those people who on that day were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, but who in just a few days are going to be screaming out, crucify him. In other words, Jesus is weeping for you. (laughs) And Jesus is weeping for me. Every tear that has ever been shed by anyone anywhere was rolled up into the tears of Jesus. The Son of God weeps for you. He he entered into the depths of our suffering. And indeed, he took on himself the suffering we've experienced and the suffering we've inflicted. And he crushed it once and for all at the cross. The gospel is that God's love for mourners is so magnificently great that he gave himself up unto suffering. And even unto death bearing all the curse of this world on the cross so that our suffering might one day end, so that our sadness might one day become joy, so that he can comfort us now, now, by his spirit. Every single one of us comes into this world with tears. And Jesus did too. And the tears of Jesus have redeemed all of our sadness The tears of Jesus can bring comfort even in the middle of it all now because we have a God who understands mourning. We have a God who, by going through the sadness of death himself, now has the power not just to identify with us in our sadness, but to comfort us in our sadness because he has come through on the other side into resurrection life and has given us the spirit of resurrection life now And it's promised that we will one day come through with him. At Christ Church, we love C.S. Lewis. You know what? I love C.S. Lewis. And I foist it upon them all the time. And they say, thank you, don't you, Christ Church? One of the the Chronicles of Narnia, not the first published, but in chronological order, the first book is The Magician's Nephew. And uh, The Magician's Nephew is about a young boy named Diggory and uh, the creation of Narnia. And uh, in the story, uh, Diggory's mother is very, very sick. She's dying, in fact. And Diggory makes his way into the magical world of Narnia to, to try to find something to help her. He goes with his friend, a girl named Polly. And throughout the story, they get into all kinds of trouble. But eventually, as tends to happen when you're in Narnia, Diggory runs into Aslan. And uh, when he first meets Aslan and understands Aslan's power, he approaches Aslan with, uh, frankly, with mixed motives. He wants to use Aslan to get his mom healed. But he quickly sees, as Lewis puts it, that the lion was not at all the sort of person one could try to make bargains with. And so he asks the lion if he has anything that will help his mother. And he begins sort of rambling, almost incoherently to Aslan, looking down at him, ashamed to look up at his face because Aslan is so ferocious and terrifying. And then Lewis writes this. Up till then, Diggory had been looking at the lion's great front feet and the huge claws on them. Now, in his despair, he looked up at its face. What he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and great shining tears 
stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know, grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let me be good to you. The tears of Jesus are bigger even than your own. And because that is true, he will be good. Blessed are the sad. They shall be comforted. Let's pray.